Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. And there's always a consideration to, will this patient be aware as the uh, propofol or whatever agent you're using is washing out and you're washing in your volatile agent. So do you overpressure or do you use high flows to try and compensate for that? So I think that, so that is an issue, just going back, you know, um, awareness was a big issue because of the historical technique that was used uh, where, the, where they were worried about neonatal respiratory depression and they weren't giving volatile at all. Mm. Um, but I think the rate of awareness dropped a lot once it became ex- accepted that we should be using volatiles. Mm. So most people use a volatile plus or minus nitrous oxide, don't they? Um, do you use nitrous oxide? I do. Yeah. yeah. At the beginning and the end, I know some mm. people use it. Mm. The other reason people talk about using nitrous oxide is um, it's volatile sparing to help with uterine tone because mm. yeah. um, the volatiles are uh, uterine, you know, relaxant drugs. Um, but to answer your question, Laura, um, about awareness, yeah, I personally, I then once I've secured the airway, give them um, sevoflurane and nitrous oxide, and try I try and wash it until and. To, to get a sort of decent um, level of anaesthesia on board. How do you do it, Matt? Yeah, very similar. And going back to it's an old recipe, but doing it well. And I, you know, even though awareness was and it's traditionally been increasing this patient group, it still is a problem. Yeah. It has borne out by the um, the NAP. So that's the National Anesthesia Projects of the Royal College of Anesthetists, NAP 5. Yep. Um, where I guess the headline finding, and this was a report looking at rates of awareness across all different groups of patients receiving general anaesthesia, and probably the headline finding was that obstetric patients were overrepresented in terms of awareness. Mm. And we've already touched on one reason, which is muddling up thiopentone for other drugs like yep. antibiotics, so give me the thio or the kevazonin followed by the succimethonium. Mm. But the other um, reason was... Um, they talked about the gap, mind the gap. Mm. So the induction agent goes in, as Roger says, it's washed out relatively fast. So it's quite interesting if you think about, I can't think of any other group of patients where a knife goes in so fast mm. after induction in somebody who is not physiologically compromised. Yes. So we often do this, say, in this may be a trauma case or someone who's bleeding to death mm. where you really don't need much induction. But most of these cases are in women who are having emergency surgery because of fetal reasons. Yeah. They're anxious, they're aware, they're fit, they're healthy. So and they have a very high cardiac goes in yeah. Yeah. They have a very high cardiac output because they're pregnant and they're anxious. So um, they wash out wash those drugs out of the brain real fast. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, and if there's any delay in getting the tube in, um, then you can't get the volatilation on board. And if perhaps you don't use the old fashioned techniques like um, using higher concentrations of volatile agent and nitrous oxide, you won't get an adequate level of anaesthesia before the knife goes in. Yeah, mm. and they haven't had opioid often as well, which mm. often uh, obviously is a max of sparing, you know, lowers yeah. the amount of volatile you need to, 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 to stay unconscious. Mm. Brilliant. Interesting. The Good. perfect storm for awareness. Well, it's quite, when you think about, you know, the induction drug, you're asking quite a lot in obstetrics because yep. you've got to provide something that's going to be safe, so it's not going to drop the blood pressure too much because you've still got the baby on board. Mm. Um, it's got to be washed out fast enough such that the baby isn't compromised afterwards yet it's got to provide adequate hypnosis and amnesia as well so Mm. 
so it's actually it's it's quite a challenge, and yeah. that's why I think you know having a second syringe is is very useful. Yeah. Um, and having a little plan in your head, what you're going to do is useful, giving the right amount and making sure the volatile agent is getting in quickly if that's your... Mm. So I guess uh, something we haven't touched on is, so then you know, we haven't met indirectly, but is the um, these drugs that we're giving to the woman in induction um, and how much of it gets across to the neonate and how much how relevant is it for, for, for our colleagues who are in charge of looking after the neonate? I'm not fully over that, but I do notice that if there isn't that long a time between induction and delivery, most of the time I don't notice a big um, compromise of the neonate. Um, you know, half, and a lot of the time the reason you're doing the GA is because the neonate is supposedly compromised, but they often come out fairly and, and start um, you know, crying and breathing pretty quickly. Mm. That's brilliant. Okay, so... Um Quite keen to give you a Viva scenario to just wrap up our conversation. Sorry, Laura, just, just one other thing. Yeah, sorry, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, just like going, to own voice. Just, just going through my head, just the sort Please, of process. Yeah, yeah. So we pre-oxygenated, we've given the drugs, and we put the tube in. Now, there's a little bit between that. Yeah. Um, and one thing that's been, has come out in the most recent obstetric anesthetist difficult airway society guidelines is consider face mask ventilation whilst you're waiting for your muscle relaxant to work. Yes. Um, and I have to admit, I've been considering it for many years. Mm. Um, well, when I say considering, I've been doing it for many years. Um, just gentle face mask ventilation with cricoid pressure on, as you would maybe if you're intubating someone who's very sick. Mm. Um, uh, but I feel much better now that it's been suggested it's okay to do. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, but, I, but I still know that there's a lot of people who feel very fearful of this and maybe correctly I don't know Roger do you have a view yeah listen um, I guess if you know they do desaturate quickly and I guess um, especially if they're not fasted if if you if you're vigorous and you and you blow up their stomach you could then cause uh, regurgitation of solid material and so mm. it's a bit of a worry there um, probably now especially where we have sugaminics and things if you especially if you're using rock uranium which is you know most of the time, if you're using a d- an appropriate dose of saxamethylam, they get paralysed pretty quick. Um, but if you're using rock uranium, I guess that I definitely do um, do what you do. I often give them a few puffs, but that you know, I try to have them head up. I try to use a Cadell, mm. and I try to so so that the the pressure that you, of the ventilation that you're giving is very gentle and unlikely yeah. to oh, send unlikely to the stomach. Yeah, we're, we're talking. It's like in very, lapros- very this gentle. is like in laparoscopic so what, surgery. What I try. I don't want to distend the stomach. To, to you, like what sort of pressures? What what centimeter? For well, someone I know, who's I not know the, the, the guidelines suggest. Um, well, they. I mean, it's very clear in the guidelines. Um, they suggest considering gentle face mask ventilation, minimizing airway pressures to below twenty centimeters yeah. of water. Yeah. Well, that's um, often and, and it's actually incredibly twenty shoring. Twenty is quite high. Mm. Yeah, I think. But again, there is no evidence for this. Um, yep. But when, when you know, if you do enough of this and you um, and you fail to ventilate or you have problems, the the speed of desaturation is is really quite dramatic, and mm. and you have to sort of offset the risk of maybe some gentle face mask ventilation with the benefit of intubating with a nice tone on the pulse oximeter and yeah. a fully oxygenated patient, knowing that. You know, if it is difficult, we've got a bit more time. Yep. So there's a lot of room to modify the RSI then from our I discussion. I think so. Yeah. Yep. But do you think, I mean, you know, from an exam point of view, should 
should we be advocating this or I think so I think you've justified it very well so I can't see a an issue unless you've decided to do it for no good reason. So I think um, from an exam point of view, as long as you can justify your reasoning, and I think yeah, exactly I think what you've said is very... I'm not an examiner, but I think if you can explain your thought process and why, uh, and, it, and it's, and it's um, um, obvious then, uh, and you explain it well, then um, that's a reasonable thing to do in an exam. Yeah. And I think in the Viva as well, you, you need to just answer it as if it was real life and what would you really do? Um, yeah. And I don't think you should be aiming to give the examiner an answer that they want to hear. You should answer it as if you are in that position and um, you're trying to do the safest thing. Yeah, and, and most guidelines still suggest trichoid pressure um, and removing it, obviously, if there's yeah, that's problems. Right. Um, so doing this with trichoid pressure rather than without. Yeah. Mm. Probably and uh, to be honest, even though I've, I said earlier I don't, I don't really believe in it, most of the time, the people around me have been taught that way, and I'm happy for them to do it. But I, exactly as you say, Matt, if I think it's causing problems, I'll get them to take it off. And that's what the guidelines support as well would be to, um, if you want to use cricoid, have a low threshold to remove it to age yep. insertion or ventilation. So, are you happy to tie this up with a viva scenario? Right, let's tie it up in knots. <laughs> <laughs> hit, hit us with something mean. Okay, this is very mean. It's probably um, not particularly realistic but uh, it should but have some good learning points coming this, out of it this could be a vibe a sort of you know level of um, difficulty and that you might, enca- might yep. encounter in, a, in an exam because they usually are fairly complicated they are yes yep. um just to explain the reasoning really behind your decisions so this is um a viva scenario and you are the sole anaesthetist on call overnight at a tertiary center you receive a phone call from the obstetric senior registrar who is called a Category 1 cesarean section for a cord prolapse. The patient is a primate and weighs 160 kilos. The obstetric registrar states that the platelets are 67 and the patient has no other obstetric or past medical history that he is aware of. The patient is not fasted. On arrival to theatre, your examination of her airway reveals retronathia with a short thorough mental distance, small mouth opening and she's a Mal and Patty grade three. So this is obviously a complex scenario. So what are your concerns and what would be your personal plans for anaesthesia? Matt. First of all, get the other person in the Bible to answer first. <laughs> we, we talked about risks and why things are more difficult, and I think this case sort of has it all, doesn't it? Mm. Um, so there are clearly anatomical and physiological challenges and also situational challenges. So in terms of anatomical challenges, um, this is a uh, morbidly obese patient with what seems like a very likely difficult airway. Um, And that is going to make general anaesthesia potentially challenging. Um, And the the morbid obesity, obviously, you know, the metabolic demands of that, the association with other comorbidities, um, difficulties with getting laryngoscopes in, um, big breasts and things like that. Um, she's not fasted, therefore risk of regurgitation and aspiration. And then we throw all that into the situational side of things, which is an emergency cord prolapse, often high levels of anxiety. Yes. Um, which time of the day is it, or night? Is it night time? Overnight. There you go, night time. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's ticking all those yeah. <laughs> boxes. It is, and you've broken right. that up really well. Yeah, that's nice. Um, 
How would you consent this patient? Are there any issues around consent in this sort of emergency situation or considerations? Have we decided what we're going to do? No, I suppose okay. that's what we'll do. I think probably what I would first of all do is just um, try and, uh, if this was a viper, I'd also, um, the next thing I do after uh, the, you know, outlining all the concerns that matters is to talk about what the options are. Um, mm. And it wouldn't, um, I personally wouldn't want to, don't go too narrow, so don't just say spinal or GA. Um, you know, you could also do um, an awake intubation because um, I know that's very uncommon in obstetric practice, but what you've got here is a woman that looks like she'd be difficult to intubate and ventilate and is at risk of aspiration. Um, but she also would be very difficult to do a spinal in, and, um, and she's got low platelets, so that's might be a relative contraindication. So all the options are a neuroaxial of some sort, mm-hmm. which could be a spinal, a CSC, epidural, intrathecal catheter, or a general anaesthetic, which could be a, you know, an IV induction, and hope for the, hopefully with all the kit you can get a tube in, or an awake intubation. Mm. Uh, so and if you said that to good. an examiner, uh, you know, I think they would think, well, this person's all over it. Mm. Um, but then, obviously, some of those things that I've just suggested are going to take a long time, and um, most people consider the cord hanging out like a very um, you know, time pressure situation because obviously the main thing there is that if there if there is no blood flowing through that cord, the fetus is become, going to become asphyxiated. So that is a th- that is not always the case. So it depends whether the presenting part is pushing on the on the cord, uh, and also depends on how well the fetus can be monitored. Which is uh, CTG monitoring in in more super morbidly obese patients is tricky, mm. um, but obstetricians can put an ultrasound on and have a look at the fetal heart rate mm. that way. Uh, if the patient is not contracting or if they've been given you know, tibutaline or something to stop the contractions, then the pressure of the head on the cord may have been relieved and the, the, the fetal perfusion could be fine. And, in fact, there may well be no time pressure and you can take your time and yeah. do some sort of neuraxial with an ultrasound or, or just good technique hmm. uh, or an awake intubation um, if there's no time pressure, sure. um, if the patient's cooperative and understanding. And so it's... It's probably good in real life and in a viva to then, you know, to be able, uh, if you're in the situation, to sort of say all those things out loud and include the patient and the obstetric senior registrar, who's obviously the other key decision maker in the room, mm. aware of your thinking and why uh, you don't want or you're concerned about just giving some profound sucks and then, to, and then um, ending up with a maternal disaster mm. um, without trying to scare everyone, but just sort of explaining it. That that's a possibility, and you're concerned about that, and you think that that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so let's say you've explained the risks benefit um, to the patient in conjunction with the obstetric team, and you've both decided to go ahead and attempt a spinal single shot spinal. And um, this, however, fails, um, and you're forced oh, to Roger. It was, it was Roger. <laughs> it's not uncommon. <laughs> um, and there's no phone-a-friend option available, sadly, so uh, you are forced to um, give this lady a general anaesthetic and she's refusing to wake fibre-optic intubation. Um, the situation is becoming more urgent and the, they are able to get a, a, a CTG trace and it's very non-reassuring. So are you familiar with any obstetric airway drills um, that people could use as a sort of um, cognitive aid or a checklist in this sort of situation since she's so difficult? Yes. Yes. 
Med is a very familiar <laughs> one. <laughs> they've heard. Is there one right in front of us? Yeah. yeah. Um, so the uh, difficult airway society. So there's a few, isn't there? Yeah. In a real yeah. vibe, you there's not two of you, so you can't stare at each other and wait till the other person cracks first. Yeah. So I think as long as you're familiar with a a um, algorithm of some description. Um, I think the most common, I mean, there's the vortex approach, which would be very appropriate in this situation as well. Um, but there's also a specific obstetric anesthesia one um, that's been created with by the Difficult Airway Society yep. um, and the Obstetric Anesthesia Association. Um, and most of these advocate for two attempts at each uh, endotracheal intubation, supraglottic airway insertion and mask ventilation. Um, but I think, like we discussed before, the most difficult uh, decision to make really will be if you proceed with surgery, if you um, obtain a, uh, a fairly adequate but perhaps not uh, completely adequate supraglottic airway insertion. Yep. Um, and I think we've discussed that already. So I think the preparation here is, is very key, isn't it, that <clears throat> you really want to optimise positioning, optimise um, pre-oxygenation, really work through all your available plans, make sure you've got the... Uh, appropriate equipment available. Um, think about the superglottic airway device you're going to use. Make yeah. sure it's there to hand. Not yeah, I'd, get, I'd actually get it out and open it and lubricate totally, yeah. it and have mm. it all, completely all ready, ready to go. go. Um, and I mean, I agree with Roger. We should be using video laryngoscopes. I think for all. Yep. <laughs> one should argue for all yes, intubations. No, I, I, I think so. we have this podcast in the future. We'll be doing mm. that, and we'll probably be using rocky uranium. I suspect, but. Um, uh, yeah, good pre- pre- uh, preparation, positioning, pre-oxygenation. Um, choose your video scope, have all your plans in place um, yep. to deal with. <coughs> what and in a viva, yeah, I think, yeah, if you answer the whatever they throw at you, if you answer it, uh, and it's obvious that you're sort of following the um, advice that's given in these written guidelines. Mm. And I would even state the guideline that you're referring to as yeah, well. Yeah, and just say yep. that's, that's you, the approach I would take. Then that's what they're trying to... Um, ascertain as to whether or not you do know so which way is this one going laura so i put her off to sleep mm. success I, oh it okay. depends it depends whether the they, they, they want to push you yeah right. so do i intubate her you've you've successfully intubated roger's usually when I, when, I this, when I do this when i do this normally how it goes <laughs> and um just, just can we just clarify is she um she's got a bit of a fever and a cough and she's uh, she presented in a labor ward in new york city in mid-april is it is it elder how the story I goes. That, it <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is um, choking apart. We're not going to mention that, but um, we we shouldn't stop just at the intubation side of things, should we? Mm. No, um, that's right. We're talking about um, airway, and there there, ha- there has been harm, and there are sadly cases of mortality. And there's there's been some in the US um, reported of problems with extubation. Yep, bronchospasm um, so and yeah, um, we shouldn't hypoxia. Take our eye off the ball, and uh, all of us are familiar with. The end of surgery, where yep. the kind of levels of joy suddenly increase, and most people leave the room, mm. and we maybe take our eye off the ball potentially. Mm. So we've always got, especially in someone like this, someone you've still like this. got a full stomach, mm. and, and then you has do a difficult airway. So has if you have yeah. trouble, you know, she gets laryngospasm or um, regurgitates, or um, you know, is not as conscious as you thought she was when mm. you first pulled the tube out. Mm. Um, suddenly discover that she's not breathing as well as you were hoping, and uh, she was incredibly hard and she went in the first place. She mm. can be in a world of pain. Yeah. And there was a recommendation from a previous confidential inquiry report following on from a case of regurgitation and aspiration of emptying the stomach of um, patients who are likely to be unfasted whilst they're asleep 
So stick yeah. a orogastric, large orogastric tube down and yeah. empty the stomach. I mean, it's remarkable what comes up mm. sometimes. Yeah. I've never never leaders. really done that, though, but uh, except in patients with um, bowel obstruction and things, then yeah. we do that routinely. Mm. Yeah, you're right, lots so of just stuff. To, yeah, consider that just for the yeah, risk of... Um, Yeah, mm. I think a third of airway cases in that four at extubation, <coughs> weren't they? Yeah, and a lot of those were in intensive care units, though. Um, so I guess we'll the breakdown as to whether how many of those were sort of surg uh, surgical patients in theatre. Mm. But yeah, I, th I agree. It's actually quite hard to extubate people of this size, I, th I yeah, find. It is. Um, and I, I generally want them really awake. Mm. I know it's... A lot of the old guidelines advocate a lateral extubation, but obviously that's not practical in some patients. Do you do that routinely if you can move the patient? Or? <coughs> um, I extubate people lateral or sitting up usually, mm -hmm. yep. depending mm. on what I think is the best option. Sitting up might be best for the respiratory mechanics in a morbidly mm. obese patient like this. Mm. Uh, With I think improve the FRC yeah, like this, you know, uh, if you were to have problems, it'd be much easier to manage sitting up. Um, that's right, because you can lie them down easy, uh, easily. But also, the respiratory mechanics of the breathing in the FRC is better, I think, sitting up than on the side if you're if you're that big. Mm. And personally, my hands aren't very big, so um, having someone on their side and ventilating them is very difficult for me. So I need to have them on their back. So I personally don't extricate people on their side. Maybe children, but um, mm. certainly not adults. I think thinking about, uh, we talked briefly earlier about, uh, you know, that horrible situation that um, I haven't been in. Have you been in where you've you've put somebody off to sleep for a caesarean section and you've maybe got a, a supraglottic airway device in but you've been unable to intubate and the surgeons are looking at you with a knife in their hands saying, can we continue? Um, <coughs> somebody like this, Roger, what... What would you that do? would be difficult. So think about all those different so factors. So, I so would perhaps you've got a size for how well the LMA is working. Okay, oh, it's in, you're yeah. oxygenating this is I, 90%. This is, what I, this is what I do to people in uh, my, my practice vibe. <laughs> what, what's Matt doing to me? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I say you get it in and the sats go from 70 up to 84 and you can see some CO2 on the trace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What Pretty are you going to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, so then you've got to decide. Oh, in my mind, you know, you're going to – there's three decisions – Are you going to let them deliver the baby? Are you going to try and make this a better airway but keep them asleep, you know, intubate them through the airway, which you can do. If it's an ideal, it's more difficult with Supremes and classic LMAs. Uh, or are you going to try and wake them up? That's a tricky one. Mm. And that depends on all those other factors we were talking about. Mm. I don't think in this woman delivering the baby will necessarily make things better because a lot of the problem is her yeah. existing morbid super morbid obesity Anyway, so I think taking a baby out of that is probably not going to make things that much different. Mm. I'll probably, to be honest, um, try and intubate her through the IGL because I have done that uh, before. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a technique I've done before, and I know that it's not um, that tricky with with, with a um, the, the scope that we can that we have available. Especially knowing that you've bought yourself a bit of time because you are actually ventilating it. Mm. Um, what would you do, Matt? Because I, I just sort of feel like we've failed the spinal already. Um, waking her up is it going to make it easier? Well, then we're going to have to wait till she's wide awake, and then we have to try and do an awake mm. intubation. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's going to be tricky. So I'll probably kind of a I'll myriad prob of different. I would probably think, okay, hmm, let's try and get the tube through the IGL into her cords, mm. where, and you yeah, give us some. Yeah, and, and if, if, I, if you couldn't do that, then you'll be in uh, a tricky yeah. situation. And, and you could make a uh, an adequate airway inadequate by doing that. There's always a risk you could. Yep. Dislodge it. So I, I don't think there's a right or wrong here. There is no there's, right or wrong. There's no real evidence to guide you. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I do know it's been asked in exams. Yeah. And I think they just 
they're not going to fail you. They're just ex- exploring your thought process yeah, exactly, yeah. to see whether you have um, a good handle on all the different issues. Yeah, and, and I think if this was a sensible approach, yeah. an elective patient with a very difficult airway, though maybe she's got um, some Harrington rods or yeah. a reason couldn't have a neuraxial block, but everything else is entirely normal, and you're in this position, then it's probably sensible to abandon surgery and wake up. Yep. Um, versus someone who's bleeding to death. Yep. Um, we've only really got one avenue to go down. The bit yeah. in between is really difficult, and there's no right answer. There's a lot of grey, and lots of subtle things on the day would influence which direction you go in. Yes, that's right. Mm. And even though you've said you can't call for help, in real life you can always, even as a consultant, you can call you know, some colleagues to come and give you a hand because, Jesus, doing tricky cases by yourself is painful. Yeah. Is, is a horrible experience, and yeah, get some help. Although it may be a while, and in a viva you probably won't get any help, but <laughs> real, mm. in real life, mm. get some help. And there probably is a right and wrong in that. If you've got help available and you haven't called for it, that probably that's true. It's yeah. not a good thing to say in a viva yeah. or in real life. Um, so I'm very reassured by your answers. So thank you very much. Did we pass? We passed. We both passed. <laughs> God for that. Um, Did better than in real life. We're both sweating slightly. <laughs> okay. Thanks, um, Laura. It was very yeah. It was good to. Thank you. I learnt a lot. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series, a short podcast series designed for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anesthesia. Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening.